0: Let's go right away this morning in our imaginations, in our mind's eye to that upstairs room where Jesus is spending his last evening with his closest men, the 12 that he has invested himself, poured himself into now for three years. It was Thursday evening of his last week. His public ministry is finished And he will be arrested in just a few hours. He will be put through during the course of that night, a sham of a trial which was illegal. And he will be on the cross by 9 a.m. in the morning. And so as you can imagine now, this last evening, just some maybe, don't know what time they started, but some 12 to 14 hours away from his death, from his crucifixion. What made this evening all the more poignant for Jesus is that he knows all of this. He is fully aware of the timetable. He knows, for example, that his betrayer is at the table with him. He knows he will be savaged and brutalized and die a horrible death. In just the next morning, he knows that this is his last opportunity to speak into the lives of his men, his dearest and closest men, the men who are about to have their world rocked to the core and are in many ways not even going to know what hit them. And on top of it all, this is the great, greatest of all the feasts of Israel. This is the Passover. This is far more than a private evening, a private dinner with his men. This is the greatest of all the festivals celebrating God's redemptive work, celebrating the deliverance from Egypt, the Exodus. Understand, if you don't already, that the Exodus is to Israel what the cross and the resurrection are to us. This isn't just history, this isn't just a cool movie. This to them is the great, powerful, redemptive work of God redeeming his people from bondage. And it is that just just hours away from the sacrificing of those lambs. And our Passover lamb is about to be slain for us and he knows it. And so this evening, this entire evening is laden with profound significance and meaning for Jesus, you can only try to imagine what is he feeling this night? What is coursing through his heart? In Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Not only my last evening with you, but my last Passover. That word or translated earnestly desired speaks a very strong, intense desire. This isn't just some sort of perfunctory duty Jesus is performing here, just kind of, well, you know, I know I'm going to die tomorrow. I, 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 sh- I probably should spend a little time with my guys before I go. It is the longing, intense desire of his heart to be with these 12, being with them, spending this time. What would you do with the last few hours? If you knew you were spending your last evening, what would you do? What would you say? Just a just a quick survey of what happens here. I'm just going to give you, what you're going to see on the screen now are the headings from the ESV. Otherwise, I'll get to talking about all this and we won't even... Have time for the passage itself. So, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and that's where we are now. One of you will betray me. Think about that. Fully aware in all that he does in this evening, fully aware that the man who is going to send him to the cross, betray him to the authorities, is sitting there with him. He gives a new commandment, he foretells Peter's denial. The great I am the way and the truth and the life passage. Jesus' promise of the Spirit, I will send another helper, another paraclete, another comforter. That's not a blanket. Really, comforter is misleading because it isn't about comfort. It's about the one who comes to be all that we need, the power and the strength and the sustaining energy of God in our lives, the one who will reveal all truth to the apostles as they write it for us in the New Testament. He goes on, I am the true vine. He speaks to them of the hatred of the world that they and we will experience. He elaborates again on the work of the Holy Spirit. He says to them that he's going away, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He talks again about the world hating them, but Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. A reassuring of his men as they face this crisis. And then chapter 17, that great prayer of Jesus, we usually call the high priestly prayer, as he prays for his men, preparing them for this great crisis, and as he prays also for us, because he prays, I'm not only praying for you, but for all those who will hear through your word, through your testimony. And so what a poignant Heavy, laden with meaning and significance and with emotion, evening for Jesus. I want you to just note something very quickly here. It's, it's, It's not only interesting, but I think it's hugely significant as we'll see as we get into the contents. John has 21 chapters. We're only in chapter 13, and we didn't spend time in chapter 12. 21 chapters, already in chapter 12, you have the triumphal entry don't know if you've ever noticed that before. But what that means is the end of the, of the, of the life of Jesus, the, the end, the climax, the great events get un- disproportionate attention in terms of trying to write a balanced story or a balanced account. Chapter uh, 1 through 11 give us roughly those three years of his ministry. But now, roughly 40% of this gospel, of its content by verse count, is devoted to this climactic ending. From chapter 13 to the end, that is the last evening, the crucifixion, resurrection, and then the appearances afterwards, have about 40% of the content of this gospel. You find a similar pattern in the other three. Luke's is the one that gives the shortest amount, and it's one quarter. 25% of the book is devoted to the end. The other two gospels, it's over one-third, over 33%. It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus that are primary, These are not biographies. John is not trying to write a biography, nor are the other three trying to write a life of Christ or a history of Jesus. That's not the point. If you were writing a history or a biography of somebody, you'd spend time talking about their birth talking about their upbringing, talking about their family, talking about their education, shaping influences in their lives, their early career. You'd go through all sorts of detail, and you'd give, hopefully, a somewhat balanced account, perhaps giving greater emphasis to something notable about them. Maybe if it's a president or a great business leader, you might focus on their career in that way and a little bit more attention. But there's no intent of any of these writers to give us a biography to give us a life of Christ or a history of Jesus. They are presenting exactly what their books are called. These are what? They are gospels. These are the gospel being written up for us. And that is why the attention is really only on primarily his ministry and his death and resurrection. And even the attention given to those three or so years of his life. Primarily, most of the attention or a large proportion of the attention is given to his death and resurrection because that is what this is all about. Now, we're in the last evening that Jesus spends. Just one more thing here on the statistics. This this last evening of Jesus with his disciples in John's Gospel... In John's gospel now, this last stretch from Thursday night to the post-resurrection appearances, about 40% of the book, almost half of that, 45%, is devoted to this evening. This is a big deal. This is a big deal to John. And why is it a big deal? Because Jesus Jesus spoke such a important truth into the lives of these men on that last night. And he did such important things with them. And we're going to see this morning that great example. We all know about the foot washing of Jesus. I hope this morning, if you have not already studied that carefully and seen some of it, you're going to see some some things that are new to you about this. Because it isn't just sort of a passing thing in which we go, okay, Jesus is providing us a model of humble service, great, awesome. It's so much more. It is, first and foremost, not to get ahead of myself, an outpouring of his love for them. And that is what John is... So what I'm saying is John, John was so taken by this evening and by the importance of the teaching given that evening, that he devotes a large chunk of his entire gospel to this evening. We're going to just spend, uh, you know, it's almost like we've moved into a new book as we come to this upper room discourse, chapter 13 to chapter 17. It's almost like we've moved out of a narrative where we're learning about what Jesus did into an epistle where he it's all teaching. Mostly teaching. And as we get into it, I think I'm going to revert back to the way I preach when I'm in a book like Ephesians because it's just that kind of material. It's it's deep, it's rich, and there's so much there and we want to give it due attention and unpack it carefully. So here we are now, verse 13 or chapter 13, five full chapters as Jesus pours his heart and soul into his dearest and closest men. The leaders into into whom he has invested three years and understand as well to whom he's entrusting his mission as he prepares to go back to his father. The portrait we have here now on this last night as he washes his disciples' feet, majestic, self emptying love, majestic. Self emptying love. If you haven't turned to it already, go ahead and do that. Three great qualities of Jesus are seen in this instance of washing feet. His undying love, the irony there is intentional. He expresses undying love by dying. Not tonight in the foot washing, of course, but that's where it's going, and that is what it is portraying. He is also portraying sovereign majesty. And then quintessential self-emptying. So let's start in verse one with undying love. Verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, I don't feel like I read that well. Let me do it. Let me just back up. Now, when the feast of the Pass, now be- <laughs> start over. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This verse stands as a heading to these five chapters, really to the whole ending of the book. They don't really go just with the foot washing. They include it, of course, but they are really a heading to everything we're going to read from here on out in this book. And we see two qualities of Jesus that we've named already right away in the first verse. We see not only his undying love, but we see his sovereign majesty. That's why I stopped myself and I said I didn't feel like I read it really well because I wanted to place some emphasis where it belongs. He knew that his hour had come. His sovereign majesty is displayed here. I don't know how you may visualize this night, and for a lot of us, probably just unconscious. We may, maybe haven't even thought about it that much. But one way to visualize this would be that they're sort of a, this tiny band of guys kind of secreted away in a private room, hidden. To to avoid you know, being arrested too soon from the eyes of power, the eyes of the Romans, even the eyes of the Jewish authorities, insignificant, hidden. But this is really when we get the right picture here. This is what I if you take anything away this morning, what I want you to see is the majestic. Lord, King of kings, who is now in full control, he is now in the driver's seat of history. He has now been entrusted by his Father with all things. And he is unpacking. He is unfolding. He is working out what his whole life has been leading up to. This is not some poor Hidden, fearful group of guys hiding away. Maybe the disciples, who knows what they're feeling, but not Jesus. See Jesus majestic. See him love, full of love and full of the great quality of pouring out his life, of emptying himself. Jesus was not caught off guard. Jesus was not taken by surprise. He was not in the wrong place at the wrong time. Events were not driving him. He was deliberately going about his appointed work as king with all authority and power entrusted to him. Now I want to save that because it comes out more clearly in verse 3. So we'll come back and we'll talk about it more. I want to focus first now on Jesus' undying love. Verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The same love that had marked Jesus all along now marks him on this final evening and marks him all the way out. It marks him as he goes to the cross. Of course, the greatest display of love imaginable in all of human history is the cross. Now, the word translated here, he loved them to the end. Those two little words in Greek, three little words in English, to the end, can be taken in more than one way. They can mean to the end of events, to the end of his life, to the end of his time on Earth, until he went back to be with his father, and it does mean that. It also can mean that to the utmost, to the nth degree, to the fullest, completely, perfectly. And what do we know about John? John loves this kind of purposeful ambiguity. He loves to leave our minds and our hearts teased by what he's written. Like, okay, now. Wait a minute, John. Does that mean this or does it mean that? And we search the context and we 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 kind of mentally run through why 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 would we take it this way? Why would we take it that way? And we many times in the gospel of John we come out and we say, I can't decide really. It's kind of like it's even I I, I there's a lot to commend this, there's a lot to commend that. And then you realize this keeps happening. And scholars for a long, long time have recognized that John does this. The only, con- 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 only reasonable conclusion is he does it on purpose. Jesus, to the very end, loving his disciples fully, completely and perfectly. There's a very strange, very striking change in vocabulary. In the Gospel of John, as we come to chapter 13 and following, in the first part of the book, the vocabulary of light and life stands out. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the life, the bread of life, and so on. In the first part of the book, 32 times there's reference to light and darkness, but only six references now From this point on, 50 times life is spoken of. And that's why John wrote the book. You might believe, and by believing, have eternal life. So, 50 times in the first part of the book, there's references to life, none from here on out. But what's really striking in reference to what we're looking at this morning, in the first part of the book, there's only six references to agape love. Now, in this last evening, just the last evening, 13 to 17 there are 31 references to agape love Jesus having loved his men from the beginning has now loving them perfectly and completely all the way to the end his love never wavered it never diminished even now this is what's so striking about this please get the situa- the situation even A night like this, knowing full well what lies ahead. It is his love for his men that dominates his heart and his actions. A few minutes, he's going to stoop down and become like a lowly servant or slave. He's going to do something. You know, we struggle I'll say more about this in a little bit we struggle in our culture to really relate to this, to, to, to we, we don't have the kind of caste system or class system or the sense of honor and shame in a culture that you can associate with many Eastern cultures, for example. We just don't have anything like that to relate this to. But understand right now as we speak of his love, what I want you to really hear is when Jesus goes about as a, taking the place of a lowly servant or even as a slave and he comes to Judah's feet and washes them, he is loving his enemy, his betrayer. Really, enemy is perhaps not the most accurate word for that but he's loving the man he knows is going to stab him in the back. Now, if I knew, if I knew that sometime tonight around midnight the police are coming for me and they're giving me one last evening with my family, (laughs) how am I going to be feeling? What am I going to be thinking about? And if I know in the morning I'm going to be executed? (laughs) I think I'd be struggling bet- between my absorption with myself and trying to love my family. But here we don't see Jesus at all absorbed with himself. We see him pouring himself out even for the one who would betray him. We're just so egalitarian in our culture. It's difficult, I think, to get the feel of it, to get inside the skin of a culture and realize how unsettling and And disturbing for Jesus to do this at all for anyone. When Peter reacts to this, he's not—he's not just being, you know, the old joke or the old slam on Peter. He's the guy, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. That's really—that's really a misreading of Peter. I I don't like that reading of Peter personally, (laughs) as Peter just speaks for everybody else and is saying what is obvious under most circumstances. And in this case, it's no different. Jesus pouring out his love on this last evening, his agape, the highest and ideal love, as we all know, and as we've spoken of many times here, is by definition, by definition, self emptying. You cannot, you have not, I have not, we collectively, have not arrived at that level of love, so long as we are still letting self get in the way of the way we are treating. Even our, my wife, my children, my dearest friends, you. The degree to which self creeps in means I still have a lot of growing to do to achieve agape love the fruit of the Spirit. Self is not the focus of this love. It is the loved, the loved ones that are the focus, not the lover. And here, in many ways, supremely, of course, in the cross the next day, Jesus loved his own fully and completely and perfectly to the very end. And so the first quality we're seeing here is his un dying love. And again, I'm saying undying on purpose. It's ironic on purpose. It's a love that never ends. It's a love that never fails. One of, my, one of the songs I love that we sing these days, your love never fails. It never runs out on me. You know, times when I'm the most conscious of my unworthiness is just before getting up here. And I'm not saying that to sound pious and humble. I'm saying that because it's true. Every Sunday I think, okay, Lord, it's grace again, it's sheer grace again. But God and Jesus and his amazing love, it never fails, it never ends, it never runs out on us. Second thing that I'd focus on this morning is Jesus' sovereign majesty. Verses 1 to 3, outwardly, as I said before, Jesus might appear to be a tragic figure, even pathetic, the young upstart dreamer of a rabbi, a radical who kind of shook his fist in the face of empire and in the face of the authorities of his own system. But sadly, tragically, pathetically, he pushed it too far. He didn't know when to stop, and he ends up getting himself crushed under the wheels of power. That's what it could look like. To the human eye, but in reality, it is exactly the opposite. Verse 1 again, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. Jesus' entire ministry, in fact, his entire life, starting even with Mary, conception by the Holy Spirit, was all in the perfect timing of God. This has been clear from the beginning. John chapter 2, verse 3, wedding at Cana, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? That's just sort of a nice way of saying, that's not my problem. But he's not being rude or snippy. He says, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for what you're asking me to do here. Jesus was on time all the time. Feast of Booths in chapter 7 when they wanted to arrest him because they had this controversy. He healed on the Sabbath. Upsets everybody. Verse 30 of chapter 7. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. A little later in chapter 8, verse 20, when he declared himself the light of the world. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, verse 23, he's already entered into Jerusalem on the foal of a a donkey, triumphal entry. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much, much fruit. This is the hour that has come for him to be glorified. Where is Jesus being glorified according to this context? It's a context about a wheat, kernel of wheat falling in the ground. It has to die first. It's being glorified in his death. Verse 27 Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And when he finishes this very time of teaching in the upper room, as he prays in chapter 17, verse uh, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' life and his death is unfolding according to plan. He's right on schedule and he is in the driver's seat verse 2 here John chapter 13 during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God got up from supper See see what's going on here John is highlighting John is highlighting that Jesus knows full well what is happening. And he is in control. He is in the driver's seat. Verse 2, it says the devil had put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Do not read this as Flip Wilson theology. If you're younger, you don't know what that means. Flip Wilson was a comedian. And he would tell some kind of a, maybe, maybe a, an, an off-color joke or some kind of a joke with portraying something naughty he did. And then he would just always end it by saying, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. We've gotten more sophisticated and we blame it on our, you know, our conditions, our psychoses. Something else made me do it. I'm not responsible. Judas was fully responsible for the choices he made. Satan can put suggestions into our hearts. He can can press on us. He can influence. He can suggest. But he cannot force us to act. Judas was responsible and even Jesus says that. The Son of Man, Luke 22, verse 22, goes as it has been determined. This is the appointed will of God. This is the foreordained plan and purpose of redemption. But woe to him by whom he is betrayed. He will account for his actions. Now, when you think about this for yourself, you wrestle with spiritual uh, conflict What is key? According to James now, and our minds will rush to Ephesians in the armor of God, but what is key according to James when we sense that there's spiritual warfare, spiritual attack, we're being pressed upon, temptation feels so strong, or some kind of pressure we're feeling to want to... We know we know that what we're strongly feeling and thinking and contemplating is really wrong and sinful and we know it and we just have to conclude that there's also not only my flesh and my sinfulness but this pressing perhaps of Satan on my heart. What does James say is key for us? Remember? What do you do with the devil? Resist the devil. And what will he do? Flee from you. And where did James learn that? He learned that from a man who went out in the wilderness and three times said to the devil, no, I won't because this is what the word of God says and I will do that, not what you say. He resisted the devil. And what did it say after the devil was done? It says he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan said, okay, I'm not going to get anywhere now. I'll try later. You resist him. We resist him. According to James, there's another side to that. Don't think it's just kind of grit your teeth and try to be tough and resist him. There's more to it than that. What else does James say? Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. It's a double-sided coin. On the one side, you're saying no to Satan. On the other side, you're saying yes to God. Resist the devil, it goes on to say. And then verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We have responsibility here. We have things we must do. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then, of course, what the Apostle Paul instructs us to do in spiritual conflict is to do what? Put on the whole armor of God. When do we put on the whole armor of God? Let me ask the question a different way. When are we in spiritual conflict? All the time. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, today we teach spiritual warfare like it's some kind of special, unique, a particularly powerful encounter directly with a demon. That's false. That's unbiblical. Spiritual warfare is life. It's what, read Ephesians. Every day, be strengthened in the Lord. That means you got to stay close to Jesus and draw upon his strength. And then you got to put on the whole armor of God. And the whole armor of God isn't some sort of Holy Spirit hocus pocus. The hour of God is pretty clear. You've got to have truth, and you've got to have righteousness, and you've got to be prepared with the gospel, and on it goes. You've got to have the shield of faith, and so on. And so we know how to deal with Satan, and Judas here in this context is not excused by his choices. The devil didn't make him do it. The devil put it into his heart, according to verse 2, and he chose to go with that suggestion. Jesus now, understand, I want you to see, the picture I want you to walk away with is majestic sovereignty. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows his betrayer is at the table. Jesus knows that Satan is working on his betrayer. And in his sovereign majesty, he acts. Look at verse 3 now. This is really, this is one of the key statements to getting what's going on in this chapter, or in this this event, this evening. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Right there. See that? I want you to stop and take that in. I confess I've read over that many times and I miss it. We just kind of have a theology, I think, that says to us, Jesus was God, therefore, he performed miracles as God. He knew what he knew as God. He did what he did as God. Well, yes, he was God. I'm not suggesting anything else. But what is John indicating here? John is telling us at this point, as they're coming to the climax of Jesus' whole life and purpose on earth, that God the Father has now placed sovereign control of history in the hands of that man sitting in that room. He is now in the driver's seat driving events. And everything he does is for the purpose of his dying for his people and rising for our salvation He's in sovereign control of when he is arrested. He's in sovereign control of when he is beaten. He's in sovereign control of when they nail him to that cross. And he will be in sovereign control when he comes out of that tomb. It's interesting because when you read the New Testament... All of it, you find out the Father raised Jesus from the dead, right? You read the New Testament, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But listen to this. We've seen it already. Chapter 10, verse 17, on the screen. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In his humanity, Jesus operated in complete dependence upon God. He performed his miracles by the power of the Spirit. He knew what he knew that was beyond ordinary human knowledge because of his intimate fellowship and constant communion with his Father. They were in constant communication. And now he has this authority, this sovereign authority, authority on this last evening because his father has entrusted it to him. The second thing that we should know here, in one sense, is even more striking. It says that Jesus knew where he was going. He knew where he was from and he knew where he's going. He knew he was from God. He knew he was going back to God. The reason I say it's somewhat even more striking in this sense that why even mention it? Why say it? Everybody knows that. We know he knows where he's from and where he's going, from, going to. It's never been in doubt. He said it over and over in this gospel. But the point here is to highlight that Jesus is in charge. He's in the driver's seat. He knows these things and he knows what is happening and he is fulfilling his work and his destiny. Sovereign majesty. Have that picture even though he will strip down here and totally humiliate his followers. At the very least, they're embarrassed and, and stunned. You cannot do this. This is not right. Once again, I think, even I, you know, we all, I'm not claiming I get it and you don't. I'm just thinking we don't have anything like this in our culture to really relate to. I can watch it. In places like India. I can watch other people give that kind of deference and see it happen. But it's not in my bones because we're so egalitarian. The disciples are stunned and shocked by what he's going to do. But the picture I want you to have, we need to have, the accurate picture is one of sovereign, majestic, self-emptying love. And so let's move to that last quality now, quintessential self-emptying. Quintessential means the most perfect embodiment, the most perfect embodiment of self-emptying. That's what we're going to see here. And again, I hope if you haven't already learned this in your studies of, of the Gospel of John, that this will be enlightening for your sake, as it is for my sake as well. Because we usually read this passage, I think, as a great example of humble serving. And it is that. It's a great example of humble serving, but it's even more than that. And what is happening? What is going to happen next here is a parable in action. And this parable in action doesn't point simply to humble service. It points in particular to the humble service of the cleansing work of Jesus on the cross. And so as he takes this menial position, far beneath his dignity, he's picturing the much greater act that will happen tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. King of kings, Lord of lords, what did he say? Son of man did not come to be served. You know that word served refers to a waiter or a waitress. He didn't come to be waited on. A king with all the palace servants there, beck and call. He came to serve, to be the waiter, to be the one who provides and to give his life for the others. What makes this so striking in Jesus, what makes this quintessential as you and I are called to humble ourselves, to empty ourselves, to take the lower place, because it's right for us to do so. It is because in reality we are nothing. Think about this. There's a, there's a verse. There's a verse that that I, I, I bring back and I pl- apply again and again to my own ego. What do you have that you did not receive? Which of us is responsible? If if you're particularly, I'm not, of course, but if you're particularly blessed with beauty or handsomeness, did you create that? You can get really proud. If you're intelligent, above average smarts, and you know a lot, you can get a puffed up head about that. Did you create your intelligence? Do you think that kid in the class when you were in school who struggled so much with math chose to be like that, and you didn't? You you received it. Even in those things, athletic skill, artistic ability, musical talent. This morning as I was listening to Rob sing that second song, kind of more, more of that sort of folk country, almost a little shading toward bluegrass feel, the kind of music I really love. I was thinking, Rob's voice is really good for that. Maybe he should do more of that. Rob didn't create his voice. But we humans, we have a talent or a quality. We get puffed up about it. But what's even more the reason why we should humble ourselves? We should lower ourselves. We should be servants. Why? We know why. Because we are unworthy. Because in the sight of God, we're deserving only of his judgment, his wrath. The best about us is given. The worst of us makes us unworthy. And yet, who is Jesus to humble himself, to take the lower place? He's the one who by all rights is seated on the throne and does deserve all glory and honor. And yet he has zero ego. He has zero need to selfishly cling to his dignity and worth. And he takes the lower place. And it isn't just a a nice little polite act. (laughs) It's to die. It's to suffer. It's to be humiliated. It's to be hated and spit upon and mocked. And to be unjustly and undeservedly put to death. Looking at verse 4, tells us that the devil is doing this with Judas. Jesus knows now the full score. Verse 4, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. I, I quickly looked at some pictures online. You know, I think the artists are afraid to picture Jesus the way that he really was because he still got ro- his robes on in all the pictures I looked at. not the way he's dressed here. He's taken it all off. Now, he's still got his proper modesty, but he has stripped down like a servant. He's taking the lower place and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I think many of you already know about this custom. It's been taught again and again, but just to be sure, we all are together on this. Normally, you would do this when people arrive for a meal in your home. This was not, please know, this was not a religious act. It's not a spiritual kind of act. It was a social custom. It was a courtesy. I first really got this custom In 2001, the first time I visited India. Again, I mean to just feel it in your bones, to get inside the skin of this custom. First time I was in India, 2001. Never been there before. Had nothing to do with Arjuna. Had nothing to do with Inch and and Nagaland. It was a totally different ministry. Um, But what I discovered there, we were far deep south of India. It is hot always there. And as you walk around... All day long, you're wearing flip-flops to kick off sandals all day long, and what happens is your feet get dirty and they get hot. And you all know, we all have had the experience of coming to the end of the day and you do not want to crawl into the sheets without washing your feet because they're just dirty and crusty. And you know it's going to just feel lousy to get into those crisp sheets with those cruddy feet and you want to go wash them. It's that sort of a thing. But what I realized one evening while we were sitting there, that first trip, another, another th- in that first trip, I saw so much of biblical life because we were in the- I saw women carrying water on their heads in pots, saw people herding goats. It was, it was remarkable. But another thing I saw there was we would eat on this particular house where we were staying, very simple house. There was an outside uh, flat roof to the second floor, there was three stories, and outside the second, there was a kind of a veranda outside there, a little patio, like, like a flat roof, and we would eat out there. And you sit out there, and you go, oh, yes, the breeze, it's about 20 degrees cooler out here. But what I realized, I just realized at one point, I thought, I'm sitting here, and how, how nice it would be if I could stick my feet in some water. And I suddenly realized... This is, this is what foot washing was really about. It's not a religious act. It's a courtesy. It's a custom for the refreshment and comfort of your dinner guests. And it was, of course, done by a lower caste person, a slave or a very lowly servant. Probably the lowest of the, of the little girls would do this. And as I've been saying, since we are so egalitarian, it's just tough for us to feel it. If I were to come to your house to to kind of work in the yard. Maybe, maybe we're coming to someone's house to serve, bringing a group of the youth over to cut grass and trim bushes and that sort of thing, and I come over, and I see the dog poop there in the yard, and I go out there to pick it up. And you go, no, Scott, pastors shouldn't do that. You know, of course not. You would never think that. You would think, well, that's great. That's nice. You know, Brothers just helping clean up. We have nothing really to, to feel the feeling, but for these men... This was unsettling. It was disturbing. It was shocking. I think I've shared with you before that one evening we were in Vizag waiting for the graduation ceremony. And we were in Arjuna's office. And there was a, a number of invited guests, including the speaker for the evening. And the room was pretty full. And Raji, Arjuna's wife, was putting out extra chairs. I was sitting. There just, there were just six, five cushions on these little couches, and Raji is standing up working, and I looked at Raji and say, Raji, I was sitting on one of them, and I said, Raji, come here, you sit here. Just like any decent gentleman would do, right? And she just kind of waved me off, and she just kind of signal, I'll, I'll tell you later. And so later on, I approached her and I asked her about that, and she said, the guest would have been deeply offended if I took your chair. She, as a woman, had no right to sit in the place of a man from another country, a pastor. That's the closest I could get to kind of experiencing a little taste of that. Jesus, what he's doing here for them, shocks and unsettles them. And he does it even for Judas. What he's doing here is an act of sovereign majesty and self-emptying. Sounds strangely like another passage of scripture, doesn't it? Something about being in the form of God, but how's that go again? (laughs) Although he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be held on to for himself. The one who is the highest doesn't have to hold on to his dignity for himself but emptied himself. Zero ego. Zero demand to be acknowledged for who he is. Philippians 2 is my great ego slayer. If I look at you, we get to comparing ourselves, I can get up you sometimes. My ego can get stirred up if we get to arguing or poking at each other. But when I look at Jesus, my ego is crushed. I wish it would get crushed permanently. Hasn't happened yet. Please be patient with me and pray. Two great principles here. Principle, first of all, of lowly service. That's the one we know. But I want you to see especially that the first and real principle that Jesus is highlighting here is he's pointing to the cleansing work of his cross. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, here's another key. To understanding this evening. The first key was that the Father had entrusted all things into Jesus' hands, sovereign authority. The second one is, verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. You're not going to get this right now, but you will later. And so the exchange he has with Peter, which is very familiar, is highlighting and illustrating for us the cleansing work of Jesus. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I don't wash you, this is what you don't understand yet. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So there's a need for complete cleansing. The cross will be the cleansing work of Jesus. And there is, a, there is the initial need for complete cleansing. But then after that, there is only the ongoing need for the cleaning of our feet. The daily need for cleaning. The daily ongoing cleansing work of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ that cleanses us. As I say often, it communion, cleanses present tense, the ongoing washing of our feet daily. Then comes in verse 12, the emphasis on the humble serving for us. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? This part you can get now, you'll get the rest later. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, master, and you are right for so I am. If I then, your master and teacher, have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. It's not talking about this physical act. It's talking about willing to get down off our high horse, come off our pedestal, come off our self-importance, and serve each other. For I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And there it is. What do I take away from this passage? You are blessed not just to know, but to do. We read in other gospels that they had an argument this evening. Remember what it was? Who's the greatest? Among the twelve, can you imagine how you're feeling when Jesus gets to this point in the evening to say, "Now I've washed your feet; you you do as I do." You understand ego slaying when you see that staggering display of self-emptying love. We need the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit transform our stubborn hearts because to live this out is not something we can do in ourselves it is against our nature but it is the calling of God it is the model of our majestic self-emptying loving Lord and Savior